Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Dan Martin. He's an endofound scientific and medical director. We're going to talk about endometriosis and uh, what's happening here in the U.S. with it. So, uh, Dr. Dan, thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, how did you uh, first cross paths with the condition of endometriosis? Like, What's your history with it? I've been studying this since 1970, so I have a 50-year history, 51 years now. I was So I, th- I think if you read the literature, you understand that pe- physicians are educated at varying degrees. We have some physicians who are educated that endometriosis is not that important and others who are educated that it is important. I happen to have been educated by a physician who thought the endometriosis was important. So I accepted it as an important disease from day one. Well, how, how many women does it affect in the U.S. every year, approximately? Every year. So overall, what, what you'll read is about 10% of women are going to be affected by endometriosis in their lifetime, which wow. means about two-tenths of a percent per year. So about two women in a thousand every year develop problems related to endometriosis. That's still pretty significant. It's a lot, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a lot over the lifetime, yes. So that's yeah. 10, oh, yeah. That's one in 10 over a lifetime. Yeah, that's tremendous. All right, so go ahead. You've been studying for 50 years. How have you seen endometriosis handled by medical professionals, you know, 50 years ago and then over the course of 50 years and now? How has it changed? The changes have, have been related to equipment and medication. Some and the things that have not changed are related to things like the normalization of pain. If we let's start with let's start with that last one first, because one of the biggest problems we have with the study of pelvic pain in women is that pelvic pain is normalized. It's normalized by the patients themselves, their friends, their parents, and the providers who take care of them. 
we tend, we tend to downplay pelvic pain in women as being part of what they have to deal with. And therefore, a lot of times when there are significant findings or significant problems, they tend to be overlooked. That's been a problem forever. It's still a problem. That's one of our biggest things that we need to address is how do we get, how do we get providers, the parents of patients, the friends of the patients, and the patients themselves to take their pain seriously. It's one of the reasons that we have an average delay to diagnosis of endometriosis of somewhere between six and 10 years. It takes a while for That's crazy. to take this seriously. If we look at the surgical therapies that have changed, the most major changes in surgical therapies have been related to equipment. In the 1960s, we had to open everyone. By the 1970s, we're developing laparoscopic techniques. And by the 1990s, we have fairly well-defined laparoscopic techniques that can keep women from having to have open major surgery where we can use a laparoscope, which is that little belly button operation. So we now have better surgical techniques. In terms of medical therapy, medical therapy in the past has been related to hormones to suppress estrogen stimulation. Estrogen stimulation is what keeps endometriosis active and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents to decrease the pain. We also use narcotics. Okay. Less of the narcotics are used now for the same reason that there's less narcotics are used everywhere. We won't get into that whole debate on, on how much narcotics we should or shouldn't be, but that's a subject. Right. But that was the predominant reason in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. By now, though, we realize that if we, in addition to decreasing estrogen stimulation, we can use anti-inflammatory medications to decrease the inner feedback of endometriosis on itself that increases its expression. That is to say, if we use anti-inflammatory medications for pain, it also decreases the degree of endometriosis. So not only the pain caused by endometriosis, but endometriosis itself. Yep. In addition, we've recognized that other medications are capable of doing that. Medications that have been used for other diseases are... Uh, and one right now is, is rheumatoid arthritis. They use mm -hmm. medication for rheumatoid arthritis get, that can be also purposed for use in endometriosis because it increases the chance that the cellular activity will be better in either one. There's some medications used for lactic acidosis that do the same thing. So we're now using medication that not only treat the pain, but also treat the medication and have shifted from only hormonal medication to other non-hormonal medications that are capable of doing that. A last thing is in how we try to diagnose it. In the past, and still mostly in the present, we still need a tissue diagnosis. That is, surgery is still required to get a biopsy so that we can get a tissue diagnosis of endometriosis. Tremendous amount of research going on right now in different biologic specimens that we can use, not only blood tests, but also menstrual flow tests that we can use to diagnose endometriosis without having to do surgery. That last one probably is the best thing that we could do. If we can manage it without doing surgery, patients will be way ahead of the game. Why is there still a, a six to 10 year uh, diagnosis window? Is that because um, but look, know, like the medical, like does the medical community believe people or do they not believe or why does it take so long? It looks like the most major problem is that normalization of pain. Everyone thinks pain is normal, so they don't take it seriously. But I would think that endometriosis is not like, oh, I'm hurting a little bit. I've, I've heard it's very debilitating. So that's correct. Is there a normalization of even 
tremendous pain. I mean, that's crazy. Yes, there is. Yes, there sure is. I mean, that was to the point that about three or four years ago, the Endometriosis Association with Fadma Lakshmi, one of the programs that we developed was, oh, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember her quote, is that it had to do with severe dysmenorrhea is not normal. Oh, killer cramps are not normal. So mm. killer cramps are not normal was one of the programs that we developed with Fadma Lakshmi to kind of present this in, in schools so that young women in their teens and adolescents would know that this isn't a normal situation. Okay. How poorly or well understood is endometriosis after all this time? It seems like I've only had a few conversations about it, but it's uh, really not well understood at all. Well, it depends on what you mean by understood. I, th I think we have a pretty good feel for what it is, what we're capable of doing, what we're not capable of doing. Exactly what causes it, we're not sure. Why some women get it and some women don't, we're not sure. But to some degree, that can be true of any disease of why some people get infections and some people don't. Why doesn't everybody get the flu and some people do and some people don't? That's, a, that's, that's one of those kind of constants we have for all diseases. In endometriosis, it, it gets discussed more because it, endometriosis is a disease that we're not sure that we know how to cure. But for most women, whether we do or don't know how to cure it is... It will take, in most women, endometriosis is a self-limited disease. And those where it is not self-limited is where we're having the problems. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Where does endometriosis uh, come from? Is that understood at all? There are several theories. So we first have to have a cell of origin. The most common cell of origin theory is that it's from the endometrium, that it's derived from the inside lining of the uterus. Uh, and that lining of the uterus can get back into the pelvis, can flow into the pelvis either with retrograde menstruation, which means that the menses, that the bleeding that normally flows through the vagina can also flow out of the tubes. The tubes are opened. That pathway is an open pathway so that people can get pregnant. The eggs and sperm go eggs and sperm go up and down that pathway all the time, but blood can also do that. So it can be distributed through that flow and then through the peritoneal cavity because that's an open area. Or it can be transmitted through the bloodstream through the venous flow. Another theory is that the endometrium is a Mullerian product. So that Mullerian has to do with embryonic development. And there's a theory that says that sometimes the Mullerian cells that are supposed to become endometrium get trapped in other parts of the body and are called Mullerian rest. So some of this may be residual Mullerian rest. Two other possibilities are that some endometriosis may come from metaplasia or change of the cell type of the peritoneum itself or in other organs and go from one cell type to another. That the theories on that suggest that that occurs not as a primary problem, but as a secondary problem because it requires that endometrium already be there or that endometriosis already be there. 
And the same thing is true when we look at bone marrow stem cells that can be used to populate the endometrium and endometriosis. Those look, those are, look, look like they help populate or engraft into the endometriosis, but they are not primary causative agents. If you compare endometriosis to cancer or a benign neoplasm, again, what does it appear to be? Like, what, Why does it start? How does it start? So let's compare it to three different diseases. One is pimples, one is appendicitis, and one is cancer. Most endometriosis, it appears that most endometriosis is like pimples. They come and they go. They're related to hormone and inflammation. Anti-inflammatory medications can make them better. Hormones can make them better or worse. Most people don't develop acne vulgaris, and most people don't develop long-term scarring with pimples, but some do. So we can treat either one of those with anti-inflammatory medication. We can treat them with hormones. It is the opposite hormones. You treat you treat endometriosis with androgens, and you treat pimples with estrogens, but they're both hormonally sensitive. However, okay. severe endometriosis, which just causes ongoing pain, isn't the pimple model doesn't fit that at all. So it's not a good model. Uh, so if you look at the appendicitis model. Years ago, we thought that appendicitis was something that always needed surgery. By now, we're treating appendicitis with medication. But and the appendicitis model is most appendicitis is easy to cure, but some can be devastating and life-threatening. Some can cause really severe, devastating problems. That one, the, the, the appendicitis model isn't good for most endometriosis, and it really doesn't talk about chronic kind of pains in general. The cancer model is a model because both cancer and, and endometriosis are inflammatory. They both get cell driver mutations. They both get other mutations in the genetic code that imply that a, a complete shift in genes is going on. With endometriosis, in general, the more changes that happen. So we measure those changes in terms of copy numbers. How many copies of the changes can we find in an individual or in disease? With cancer, there are multiple copy numbers so that they have several copy numbers. With endometriosis, it's generally one or two. So you get genetic and epigenetic changes in endometriosis that's more similar to cancer than it is to most endometriosis, although endometriosis and the most pimples, although pimples themselves particularly late scarred acne with really bad keloids can also get the same genetic changes and potentially should not genetic, but epigenetic changes, potentially mm. genetic, mostly epigenetic changes. So endometriosis acts like a lot of different diseases. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, that's weird. Are there uh, major types of endometriosis or is it uh, like a completely unique disease in each person? So there are three basic, three, well, there are multiple types, but let's just, let's talk, we'll talk first about three and then we may shift off to others. But one type of endometriosis is called superficial endometriosis. That's the one that is the closest to pimple. It basically is self-limited. It doesn't go deep. It doesn't invade anything. It just kind of sits there and sits there like a pimple causing pain. It doesn't have to be large. And one of those things we notice with endometriosis is that the degree of endometriosis and the degree of pain is not correlated. Same thing with pimples. You can look at somebody's pimples and tell them which one's ugly. You can't look at them and tell them which one hurts. Pimples hurt when they want to. They don't hurt other times. 
So the second type is deep in, is infiltrating endometriosis, and that's an endometriosis that continues to go deep into the into the tissue. That's the one that causes the most pain and 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 responds the best to surgery. So surgery works better for deep infiltrating endometriosis than it does for superficial endometriosis in, in many women. Deep endometriosis is also the one that has the most epigenetic and genetic changes. And the last one is ovarian endometriosis, which, which is no longer a peritoneal problem, but a problem within the, within the ovaries themselves where the endometriosis grows and forms cysts. In about 1.8% of women, those changes can progress to an ovarian cancer. So I guess it's persistent inflammation appears to be the, the cause of endometriosis. Is that the well, answer? I'm not sure that's the right way to say that. You got the right idea, but I'm not sure that's the right way to say it. Right idea. Okay. So persistent inflammation is what causes ongoing problems with endometriosis. It looks like if the, and that's, that's an old theory back in the 70s or 80s, we talked about inflammatory overload, is if the body's immune system can control endometriosis, then it can stabilize it and it's no longer a problem. When the immune system is overloaded, it continues to grow so that when the immune system can't take care of it or, or dysfunction immune system, that's when we have the most problems. Okay, but does anyone know how it starts and like how early? Uh, and the diagnosis window is a long time, years and years and years. So how often do you see uh, beginning cases of it? I would think most of the cases, I guess, are pretty advanced because of the diagnosis window. Depends on who's initially evaluating the patients. All of my patients who I operated on who were teenagers were diagnosed by their mothers because they had the same problems their mothers had. And their mothers came to me and said, they're acting just like I did. They likely have endometriosis. So if you have a, if you have a high awareness and a high sensitivity to this, then you diagnose it real early. And then it's very, very small. The, the, one of those patients I had whose mothers had me do the diagnosis the largest lesion she had was less than a millimeter in size. So millimeters, what, a 25th of an inch. So some of these things can yeah. be very, very small, but that requires a heightened awareness and ability to diagnose them. What, what correlates with pain level and discomfort level? Okay, so there is there are correlations that show that with deep infiltration, the more volume there is, the more chance there is that there will be severe pain. But... That doesn't, that the, the opposite is that the smaller lesions that we get can also cause severe pain. So severe pain can okay. be caused by any size lesion, but larger lesions more commonly cause severe pain. You can't, you can't predict it. In, so you can predict it for populations, but you can't predict it for individuals. Okay, understood. And then what about treatments? Uh, I guess, frankly, like, do they work? So the first thing, what, is, what does work mean? Yeah, what does work mean? If we had a blood test that we could do to tell tell us exactly when endometriosis was there and when it was not, then we could probably get a better idea of what the answer for that is. But right now, the only way we can tell if, if it really has worked is listening to symptoms and repeating surgery, which we don't want to do unless we have to. So we have a limited amount of knowledge based on patients who have ongoing severe pain. So, and in those with ongoing severe pain and in, in terms of surgical diagnosis, we're hampered by the fact that we know how to identify endometriosis when it can be seen. And that is it on the top of peritoneum, is it on the top of an organ? Is it someplace where it's visible at the time of surgery or, or in the office? But if it's behind the peritoneum, which a significant amount of, of it can be, or if it's inside the bowel, 
but not on the surface of the bowel, then we can't even see it. So even then, when we try to diagnose it, we can't be sure. So when we say that somebody, when we look and don't see endometriosis, that doesn't always mean that it's gone. There are studies, particularly with the best studies on that are in bowel, where we know that one out of five women who have bowel endometriosis have disease, not only the bowel endometriosis that you can see, but also other bowel endometriosis that's within the muscularis that you cannot see at distances of up to two inches away from the primary lesion. 14% of the time, that's outside of the normal limits of where the resection would be so that you tend to leave it behind. Is it analogous to cancer with metastatic sites? Does it appear to be like that? Local, locally, but not locally, but not at a distance. Two different answers to that one. Two, let me give you okay. a different answer. In general, it's not, it doesn't distally metastasize. On the other hand, we do get cases where people have endometriosis in their lungs, on, on their fingers, uh, in, other, in other body organs. Those are, those are rare. Excuse me, the ones in the lung aren't necessarily rare, but outside of the lungs are. The ones in the lungs are uncommon, but not quite rare. The diaphragm up in those areas, the diaphragm is, is about at about 3% level. So they can get into those, those areas. And that may be because of a metastasis of it through the venous system, particularly when you start talking about someone who gets it outside of the uh, pelvis or outside of the lung fields. The pelvis and lung fields are both within the pleural cavities, not pleural cavities, or within uh, salamic cavities, both the pleura and the peritoneum. And both of those have connections so that the disease can get there without going through the veins. But once you get outside of those two, it almost all has to be venous. But when you look at the areas outside of that, for pulmonary and lungs, I saw that in about 3% of my cases. Outside of those areas, I'm trying to remember if I ever saw a single case. I had patients who would call me about cases, but I never saw one. And that's out of about 6,000 cases. So once you get inside inside the lung field, inside the within the lung and the diaphragm, it's about 3%. But outside of that, it's less than a tenth of 1% or a hundredth of 1%. So I guess in a lot of ways, it does uh, seem to mimic cancer. I mean, it's different, different disease, but it's uh, not, it's not, still not, not, not as not as dangerous and it doesn't metastasize that often, but it mm-hmm. at least has, yes, it does have, it has those type characteristics. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Again, in terms of treatments, uh, how successful are they? You know, the surgery I know is part of it sometimes, but are people able to be cured? where they don't have any ill effects, any pain anymore from endometriosis or does it not go that far? So in general, we anticipate that about 10% of women are going to have symptomatic endometriosis that's diagnosed and another 10 to 20% will have endometriosis that's, that's diagnosed incidentally or could or potentially diagnosed if we operate on everybody that's just sitting there not causing problems. Mm. So the body's innate immune system has the ability to control this and keep it from being a problem. I was talking to someone the other day who had endometriosis discovered only because she was not getting pregnant, who had never had pain during her life. In fact, with her periods, her problem was she didn't feel her periods coming on. She had so little pain that she commonly, that she sometimes got caught without tampons or anything on hand. And when her periods would start and she wouldn't even know they'd started. So she had the, the opposite problem as far as pain. She had less pain than normal. And her, her problem was not pain. Her problem was infertility and they had to treat it for that. And that took care of, the, that took care of it at that level. 
when we talk about that 10% of women have endometriosis, about half of those more or less are infertility and about half or more or less are pain. And then there's some in there who were just found as a mass that like we could find the cyst or something mm -hmm. else that was causing those symptoms that were not, was not causing pain or infertility, but was only noted because they felt fullness or somebody noticed it routinely on an exam that they were doing as a yearly exam. I had, I had patients sent to me whose endometriosis had been found on yearly exam and the physicians weren't sure what to do since the patients were having no problems. And what we would do is just tell them that for the moment we were going to do yearly exams, make sure nothing changed. And as long as it didn't change, then we wouldn't need to do anything about it. And for most of those, it didn't change. There was an Italian article that looked at about 88 of those. And they found out out of 88 women who had endometriosis that could be found on an exam in the office, only six of those progressed over time. And the other 82, they're fine just being observed. So it's a confusing disease. What about during, uh, throughout a woman's cycle? How does the endometriosis manifest differently at different phases? So in the beginning, most endometriosis in the beginning is worse with the cycle, with the menstrual part, with the, with the menstrual flow, with blood flow during the cycle. Over time, that pain increases to the point that it can be throughout the cycle and not be related to the cycle at all. And the, the more it's not related to the cycle, the more it gets into a central feedback where not only do they have the pain because they've got endometriosis, but they also have the pain because their body has become sensitized to having pain and have what's called central sensitization or pain that is really may be dominated by the body's reaction to pain rather than the source of the pain. So at first it does appear to follow uh, a woman's cycle and then it decouples and just does its own thing. Yes. Uh -huh. So what is that? Um, I don't know. What does that suggest? I mean, you know, hormones are changing throughout the cycle. Various things are cycling. What does that tell you about, uh, you know, a woman's cycle that it would, that, that endometriosis again would be coupled with it at first and then it decouples. Like why would it, even couple in the beginning, maybe there's certain hormones that are causing it to start. I mean, what what's the thought there? Yeah, what in, in, in the beginning, when it's coupled with 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 the cycle, when during the menstrual cycle, endometriosis, some endometriosis bleeds and the endometrium bleeds. That bleeding can be trapped and cause distension of the areas of the endometriosis, like a, a pimple when it distends causes pain and then sensation in those areas. Uh, that looks like that's one reason. When it decouples, it may be more related to the fact that when endometriosis continues to progress, when there's really deep infiltrating endometriosis, the endometriosis has both glands and stroma, which are the normal components of the endometrium and a lot of other tissue that, that, are, that are glandular in nature. So they have to have both glands and stroma. But with fibrosis, as it goes deep, that fibrosis, the inflammatory reaction takes over and deep infiltrating lesions may be 85% fibrosis and scar and only 15% glands and stroma. If that scar traps nerves, if that scar presses on nerves, then that scar itself may be completely independent of hormones. Again, is there any correlation uh, with the surge of certain hormones and the action of endometriosis? Like, is it quiescent? When it's in the coupled phase initially, yes. is it more quiescent or during different parts of the cycle well, does it activate it's, it's, suddenly yes yeah, it's, it's mostly with the period with the period itself it generally tends to be quiet in between periods so as there is a progesterone decrease and an estrogen increase which is what happens at, at mensae the endometriosis tends to be more active 
in the in the inertia, in the early phases. What's happening during the period part of the cycle? Um, are there certain hormones that are going way up or way down? I know the endometrial lining is shedding, but does yes. the cell division during, increase yeah, dramatically? During, like what what happens? Yeah, during the menstrual cycle, starting about five days before menses, the progesterone levels start dropping and the estrogen levels start rising. At menses, the progesterone levels have dropped down to close to zero and the estrogen levels are still rising. And the estrogen levels will rise for about another 10 to 12 days. But that, that time during the cycle, right at the menstrual cycle, is a time when the progesterones are either decreasing or close to zero and the estrogens have been rising for about four or five days. So since this first starts happening there, I don't know, what's, what's the theory or the thought as to why it happens when, you know, menstruation occurs? Why is there a coupling at first? And why is there a decoupling? Any insights? The initial coupling appears to be related to the bleeding that occurs in the endometrium that also occurs in the endometriosis that can cause entrapment of blood and irritation because of that blood. At the same time, there's also an estrogen increase, which can increase the growth of the uh, glands and stroma of the endometriosis the same way it does the endometrium. I mean, what's the future in terms of research on endometriosis? What are some of the main aspects of it that really need research and need figuring out? The thing we need as much as anything is better diagnostic tools. We need diagnostic tools that are capable of guiding therapy that can be something, something, what I would love to see is something as simple as a breathalyzer, but I don't think we'll get that one. They're developing right now serologic tests, blood tests that have the capability uh, on the basis of uh, immune problems, epigenetic problems, epigenetic changes, genetic changes. They're also looking at the products that come out with the menses itself, with the menstrual flow and trapping that with tampons are, are doing biopsies on the endometrium to look for inflammatory changes in the endometrium. There are similar changes in the endometrium that are occurring in the endometriosis itself. With pregnant patients, one of the interesting things is, is a uh, B, BCL6 antibody or antigen, the BCL6 test. I'd have to look it up if it's an antigen or an antibody. But in an infertility patient, there's no significant pain who is getting ready for embryo transfer. If that test is positive, they do much better if you treat their endometriosis than if you do not treat their endometriosis. And that test is accurate enough that in that subgroup of patients, it can be used as a diagnostic test. Well, what do the treatments for endometriosis do? Do they slow down the cell division? Do they cause epigenetic change? Like what, what do so, they do? So, so we have, let's look at the different types of treatment. One are the hormonal treatments. Uh, the hormonal treatments, predominantly birth control pills, shut down the estrogen production. So birth control pills decrease the estrogen stimulation to the, both the endometrium and the endometriosis. Uh, Gonadotropin-releasing agonists and antagonists can do the same thing but cause more side effects and are much more expensive. If we get away from the hormonal test, we can go to things that have to do with uh, just apoptosis is the programmed cellular death in the body that, that's part of all human cellular content. All, all, all human cells tend to die in a programmed fashion. We have at least two different possible treatments that can do that. One is dichloroacetic acid or dichloroacetate, which was a substance supplement initially used to treat lactic acidosis. And the University of Edinburgh is doing research on that. A second one is hydroxychloroquine, which was originally used for malaria. 
and it can activate the apoptotic and our, our process. Those two are there. Both of those can potentially decrease the growth of endometriosis by increasing its cellular, its, its program cellular death. And then there are a lot of other secondary things. Dopamine antagonists that we use for Parkinson's disease can decrease neuroangiogenesis. And neoangiogenesis, which is the new formation of blood cell, of no blood vessels, the new formation of blood vessels is necessary to keep endometriosis growing. And if we can stop those from growing, then we might also stop the endometriosis from growing. We found out that endocannabinoids, part of the whole marijuana thing, they're compounds in the cells that have to, have to do with effect on the endometrial stromal cells. So that there's certain of the endocannabinoids that can be used to have a selective effect of killing off the endometriosis cells. And there are other different attack points, but there's just lots of attack points going on right now and all the research is going on. The research has been growing by leaps and bounds over the past 10 years. If we look at uh, PubMed 10 years ago, we were averaging about three to 3.5 new papers a day or somewhere in that range. And by now we're approaching six new endometriosis patient papers a day, every day in PubMed. That's almost 2000 a year. About half of those are basic about treatment. The other half are about uh, basic sciences of what is, what's causing it. Is anyone looking at uh, the vaginal microbiome and oh, looking yeah. to see oh. if uh, there's a dysbiosis that yes, fosters it, endometriosis? Well, dysbiosis fosters everything. The whole, whole, all sorts of diseases are, are dependent upon that. And endometriosis looks like it's one of them. There have been two or three major reviews in the past year on that. Oh, what have you seen the surrounding, you know, you know, the microbiome, the vaginal microbiome? I don't know if it's a fallopian or a, you know, uh, well, an ovary a, microbiome. A, that's, that's one of those that's complex enough in terms of looking at which bacteria and which parts of the microbiome that they're talking about that I have to have my notes up in front of my face to remember them all because they've analyzed probably 20 or 50 different bacteria that may be part of the problem. Some of those are coming vaginally. Some of those are coming from the gut. Oh, has anyone uh, characterized, you know, the, the microbiome of, you know, a woman's, again, vaginal area, the other parts of the uterus, et cetera, as she goes through the cycle? And has that, you know, uh, shed any light on what may be happening with endometriosis? My guess would be, since you can think of the question, somebody has probably done it. Almost anything that by the time I could, by the time I can think of a question, that usually means somebody's already studied it. But I don't, I don't know that. I don't know the paper. If someone has, I don't know that paper. The papers I have, I don't think are cycle dependent, but they may be. Okay. Well, very good. What's the future of, uh, of understanding and treating endometriosis? What does it look like to you in the short term? You know, maybe the next five years. I think, I think in terms of our, the possible possibilities we have in the next five years, for having a diagnostic test that can keep us out of surgery is really high. And there are enough different medicines being studied by now that have a chance of helping endometriosis that I think the chance that we're going to have much better medicines over the next year or two are, be, are, are, are significant. I think the future looks good. Well, what's the best way for uh, you know sufferers that are listening or people that know the people that are suffering uh, to get help? How can they get started where, you know, like with your material, where can they go to learn more about you and where can they get help in general? So endo, endofound.org, the Endometriosis Foundation of America is endofound.org, E-N-D-O-F-O-U-N-D.org is my material. 
As far as finding physicians, they can call their hospitals or their insurance companies to see if they have physicians who specialize in endometriosis, and hopefully they'll find those. So we have our list, uh, we, we, have, we have our resources, hospitals have their resources, insurance companies have theirs. Uh, and you can always try to Google things and hope that Google will give you good answers. True, yeah, true. Well, Dan, thank you for coming and uh, thank you for spending 50 years working on this. It's a very important topic and you know I'm glad you're a part of it and thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm glad to have been here with you. Have a good day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.